0: Every time I pick up my fiddle, every time I play piano, guitar, whatever I might be playing, I wouldn't be able to do that. I wouldn't have been able to learn those instruments without the instrument that's embedded in my head, which is my auditory system.
1: What's going on, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Rust Belt Startup. This is a podcast about reconstructing remarkable. It's long-form conversations with entrepreneurs, artists, musicians, and people that are building unconventional lives in unconventional locations. I am your host, Ryan Miller. And today on the podcast, it's, uh, this, is a, this is a great conversation that I had with uh, Dr. Heather Malyuk, and she is an audiologist, but not, not just any audiologist. She focuses uh, on working with orchestras and, and working and touring musicians. And apparently, I thought all audiologists work with musicians, but that's absolutely not the case. And Heather's gotten to work with some really big names in the business. Uh, on her website, she's worked for the tours of Jay-Z and Beyoncé, Journey, umphrees McGee, Kanye West, Dr. John, Death Cab for Cutie, Coldplay, and that's just the start of it. In our conversation, we don't just talk about the science of music. We talk about what it's like to be an artist uh, and what makes an artist. And Heather was homeschooled in Ohio. We talk about that experience and how maybe that informed uh, her career path and, and, and her ability to go out and create. We also talk about general, like, like hearing health. There was a lot of stuff that, that I got out of this conversation where I feel like I was crushing my ears for, uh, for years. And, uh, uh, and and hope, hopefully things are okay. I don't know. I, I hope things are okay. Uh, but we talk about uh, uh, good hearing health and, and how to properly use headphones, um, and and all sorts of other things in between. And this is this is a perfect time for this podcast because I was actually I was out uh, yesterday or this week. Whenever you you hear this this podcast, I was at my first Pearl Jam show. I was super super excited. My wife uh, got me got me tickets to go see. Pearl Jam at Fenway Park for my birthday back in the spring, and and the show was was this weekend. It was ridiculous. So so a I've never been to Fenway Park, and B I've never seen Pearl Jam. And as someone that has been a, a giant fan of theirs for years, this was a, a an amazing uh, an amazing opportunity for me to get out there and and see these guys. And I gotta say, man, like I I mean I know I didn't see them. When they were um, uh, uh, smaller or or less well known, but but damn, Eddie Vedder's voice is just. I think this is the best it's ever been. It was amazing. They put on a a crazy show, and normally I'm not a a big fan of like large stadium or amphitheater shows because there's just I don't know, there's too many people for my liking, and the sound usually isn't that great. But man, seeing you know being around another thirty thousand plus people in Fenway Park where everyone is just singing at the top of their lungs, that was awesome. That was awesome. Pearl Jam, Fenway Park, oh, what an experience. All right, let's get to the podcast. This is my conversation with Dr. Heather Maliuk. We'll just go right from the beginning. So Heather, where, where are you right now? You're in Ohio or are, you, are we doing this from somewhere else?
0: I am in Streetsboro, Ohio. Right where's, now, which is home base for me. Streetsboro is in the northeastern part of the state. Um, about, it's about a 45-minute drive to Cleveland. So if you're looking at a map, we are southeast of Cleveland.
1: Awesome. And uh, I'm, you were mentioning to me that this is kind of a rural, uh, a rural place?
0: It's, yeah, it's, it's more rural than a suburb, but it's not all farms. There are some what we call farmettes around. Um, farmets, so small har- farmets, little hobby farms. Um, my folks have a small hobby farm here, and I'm down the street from a small garlic farm. That kind of thing. Um, so it's people who have land, but who aren't necessarily big scale farming.
1: So it's are they doing like one crop, or and are they still are they selling mostly at farmers markets, or what are they what are they doing with the crops?
0: Yeah, we we have a lot of farmers markets around here. Um, and it's a lot of people are interested in this area with, um, self-sustaining kind of things. Um, so growing big gardens, preserving for the winter, you know, having bees, chickens, that kind of thing.
1: Very cool. And, um, so you're, you're an audiologist and we got hooked up through a, a mutual friend, um, my friend Laura in Chicago. And, uh, can you, tell me what an audiologist does. And I know there's gonna be some discrepancy uh, what, where you think the field is versus where other people think the field is.
0: Sure, a, an audiologist in general is someone with a doctorate, a, a clinical doctorate, four year um, doctorate in treating, diagnosing, and working with hearing loss, hearing disorders. Um, and also disorders of the vestibular system. So, um, for people who don't know what vestibular means, it's your balance system. Okay. Cool. And so that's that's really what the the doctorate, the training, um, and the description is. It's for hearing and balance disorders.
1: And why did you want to get into this business?
0: Well, I I got into it. Um, <laughs> Actually, sort of on accident um, from seeing an ad online for the local program at Kent State University. And as soon as I saw the word, I was intrigued. Um, I did some research on the background of the field and what was involved, and I immediately was not only super interested, but I very quickly fell in love with um, the concept of the field and how varied and wonderful the field is, really. Um, There are so many facets of audiology. A a lot of people think that an audiologist is just someone who, you know, fits hearing aids all day, Um, which is true for some, but there are many, many specialties within the field. For example, I specialize in the music industry, but some people specialize in cochlear implants, um, like I mentioned, vestibular disorders, tinnitus therapy, and the list goes on and on and on.
1: Very cool. And my my experience as someone who played did the bar band thing for about a decade um, was I think you know probably by year by year eight um, I had decided you know probably rolling at one hundred and twenty decibels twice a week is not good uh, for for my hearing. And I that's my only experience was was getting the um, the musicians earplugs, which I I know that that you do as well. And uh, boy, that made a, a huge difference. But that was my only. Um, that was my only you know, experience with, with an audiologist. I was, I was just worried that uh, I was crushing my ears, which I'm, I'm sure I was. So do you see a lot yes, of that kind I, of thing?
0: Yes, I do. Um, and, and sort of the unfortunate thing about that and the unfortunate thing about your story, which is very typical, is that many musicians see an audiologist as a means to an end and only seek them out when they need a product. Um, and that is really not what an audiologist is or should be. They're a healthcare provider, um, and it's my hope that in the future musicians will see the audiologist as someone they can go to for an annual test, someone that they can talk to about any disorders they're experiencing, et cetera, and not just see them as something that's standing in their way between <laughs> themselves right, and a right. custom product.
1: So let's let's go from from the beginning because you were telling me uh, what we what we spoke. A couple of weeks back, or maybe it was a week ago, that you, you've got kind of a very interesting story. Can you talk a little bit about where you grew up and and, and you were homeschooled and you were a street performer mm-hmm. and you were a musician? Um, that probably laid a lot of the foundation for what you're doing now. Can you can you kind of guide us through some of that?
0: Definitely. Um, I'm from Northeast Ohio. I'm I'm from where I am now, um, and I'll I'll get back to that in a second and kind of what brought me back here you know, on on my audiology journey, so to speak. Um, But I did grow up in a wonderful family, Um, was homeschooled all the way through uh, kindergarten, actually through my first year of college, and was truly raised by my parents to kind of be an artist. I have two older sisters. We all grew up playing music. We all grew up doing different facets of the art world, such as painting or pottery. and we were highly involved in that. Of course, what took precedent was was music. Um, and both my older sisters, I can't even begin to tell you how talented they are and what wonderful artists they are. Um, but as I was growing up, my one sister Lisa and I, we played together. She plays folk music as do I. Um, I play fiddle and guitar, and we started performing together in our early teens. I was in my early teens, and. It, gave us the opportunity to play in a sense all over the world, you know, several different countries. Um, we, you mentioned street performing. We even worked as street performers at Disney world. Um, and I ended up going on to the university of Akron in Ohio to get a degree in music history. And what I was focusing on was ethnomusicology. Um, so I had a real interest in Russian music and Appalachian music and I had enrolled into a master's program for ethnomusicology at Kent State. Um, And then earlier I mentioned seeing an ad for audiology and that's sort of what, what took me away from the ethnomusicology program um, and into this field. And And beyond that, you know,
1: I... Like, is that the study of, of all different cultures of music?
0: It is. Yeah. It's sort of how I view ethnomusicologists are the historians of, and and sort of the keepers of traditional music throughout the world. And so, you know, an ethnomusicologist can have a a general education in how things are done, um, you know, field recording, for example, going out and collecting music and preserving it. Um, But typically they have a focus um, in terms of an area of the world or a specific type of music. And so the Kent State here in Ohio has a really good program for that. Um, and cool. so that's what I had been enrolled in. Yeah, it, it is really cool. We have a great community for that here. Um, but then I, you know, I did a 180 and went into a science field. <laughs> okay, why? Because when I found out about audiology and the hearing system, number one, it shocked me that I as a musician had never learned about this before. And in my mind, reading about what an ear does and the process uh, of sound from acoustic, you know, molecules in the world around us, taking it all the way through the system and into the brain to be processed as an electrical signal. Uh, It occurred to me that every time I pick up my fiddle, every time I play piano, guitar, whatever I might be playing, I wouldn't be able to do that. I wouldn't have been able to learn those instruments without the instrument that's embedded in my head, which is my auditory system. And so, you know, and I think that's where the concept of me falling in love with that really came from, because I viewed that system as I was learning about it as my access to music. And to me, my whole world has always been music since, you know, age two in church choir when I was little. It's always been sort of the first love of my life. Um, And it, it really occurred to me that that love would not exist without my auditory system. And of course, the next logical jump there was saying, how can I learn all about this and teach other musicians and work still within my own family and my own community, uh, which is the music industry? Um, And of course, that has led me to where I am now via a few, you know, schooling and and Mm an externship and working at a musician's clinic and now currently having opened my own, musician's practice.
1: Yeah. So this is, you've got a new, a new clinic um, that you that you're starting it, it is in Northeast Ohio.
0: Yes. It's a mobile clinic in that I don't uh. have a brick and mortar storefront. Um, I work out of my home and I travel all over the state currently, and also all over the country working within different facets of the music industry.
1: Can I, I want to spend a lot of, a lot of our conversation talking about um, your actual work with, with orchestras and musicians and the music industry in general. Can I just back up for a second um, and ask a quick question mm-hmm. that, that jumped into my head? When you were talking about, sure. you know, your, your parents homeschooled you and, um, and there was an emphasis on art. I mean, what is, in your mind, what does it mean to raise an artist? How do you, how do you facilitate that as a parent? Or how did they facilitate that? Um,
0: that's a good question. And I suppose my answer might be different because I am actually not a parent. <laughs> so, you know, I don't know what it's like to be in a parent's shoes um, and look at your child and think, what, what do I want them to do with their life? Um, but I, I honestly think from my parents' perspective, one of the things that drove all the music education was. The concept of the hard work and the focus and the dedication that it takes to be a musician. I mean, we dabbled in other things, but it really truly was primarily music growing up. Mm. Um, and I think the reason they did that was to train uh, logical thinking in a way, you know, working your way through problems, um, being able to focus for three or four hours of practicing, um, knowing that you have to practice every day, and essentially the work ethic that that instilled some of the hardest working people I know even now are musicians.
1: Yeah. That's interesting. And Um, true. Yeah. I totally, I totally believe that.
0: mm -hmm. Yeah.
1: Um, did what, what kind of, were they musicians, your parents?
0: My mom is not, although her father was a self-taught, um, folk musician who even did some, you know, home recordings in the 1930s and forties. Um, my father plays accordion, uh, in my opinion, he plays it well. He plays, (laughs) you know, polkas and waltzes and things like that. He's been playing since he was a child. Um, he doesn't perform out. Um, although I've, I recently asked him if he could play a gig with me. Um, so we'll see if that happens or not, but yeah, he, he plays accordion and growing up, my mom, even though she is not an instrumentalist every, every day she would sing to my sister's, uh, And myself, and even if we would have a question, you know, for her, any question you can think of, a response oftentimes was a section of a song, or song Hmm. lyrics, you know, that she would sing. that would have to do with whatever topic. And so her, even though she's not a trained musician, her take kind of on life is a musical one, um, in that she would always respond, you know, musically to us, which, which is hilarious to me now as an adult. But we would always say growing up, mom has a song for everything. And it's still true to this day.
1: Yeah. That's awesome. Um, How do you think that experience, you know, or do you think that that experience had anything to do with um, you not going into audiology, but you going into a field where you had to be kind of entrepreneurial or or create, I mean, it's creative problem solving for everyone. Uh, Mm -hmm. You know, as someone that, you know, we don't have... I shouldn't say we don't have a lot of people that, that do homeschooling around here, but uh, what would, what were some of the, as you look back now on that experience, what were some of the things that you thought were, was, were best about that experience and what were some of the challenge, you know, were there other challenges that you had to face as a result of maybe not being in a, in a, in a public school setting or private school setting?
0: Um, I think you mean in terms of being homeschooled?
1: Yeah. I mean, and, cause that's a unique experience for, for anyone. And I don't know, how, you know, what do you, what were the superpowers that you gained from that? Or were there things that oh, I see. once you, you know, went to, to college where you're like, Oh my God, I, 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 I this is a brand new experience for me.
0: Mm-hmm. I think that a, a superpower that I notice a lot in homeschoolers is the ability to, um, you know, I mentioned work ethic earlier, and I, I don't want to yeah. use that term again and be redundant, but the ability to take your day and and manage your time wisely and get much more achieved. I mean, we, we see homeschoolers over and over and over again who are far ahead of their peers, whether it's in terms of, you know, maybe they're graduating college early or maybe mm-hmm. they are starting a business early. Um, and, and one of the reasons for that is that Homeschoolers often get more one-on-one attention because they're not in a class, you know, full of other kids, and with one teacher who has to divide attention. So, so that is one reason. Um, but also, you have flexibility throughout the day, and you can manage your time however you'd like. You're you're not beholden to a a public school schedule. So, I think one of the superpowers, so to speak, is being able to take your time, use it wisely, and you do have to be creative. Um, you know. I don't know how every homeschooler in the country does things. I know how my mom did things um, with us girls. And if we had a problem, or if we had to do something throughout our day, we had to figure it out. And that was one of her teaching strategies. You know, use your brain, think through it logically, and get it done. Um, And so I think that's probably the biggest superpower. In terms of something I would have missed out on, I can't think of anything personally, um, you know, beyond the arts, beyond music. We were also involved in sports. Um, and a lot of other extracurricular activities. So my sisters and I always had a lot of friends. Um, we were always doing a lot with each other um, and our community as well. I mean, I was part of a garden club and we would go out and volunteer at local nursing homes. And, you know, we always were doing things all the time. Um, and of course, Northeast Ohio has wonderful homeschooling support groups. And I don't, you know, you mentioned there that maybe there aren't many homeschoolers near you. We are lucky in this area of the country that we have some really great groups. Um, And so there's a huge support net. One thing that was odd to me when I did get to college and I was taking classes, the focus on grades. Always, you know, it kind of surprised sure, me sure. that people were worried about 2% difference in their grade, where growing up and learning from my mom and my dad, it was always about, did you learn the material or not? It yeah, was never just, about, did you get an A or a B? You know, if I got GPA? a B, if she yeah. graded a paper, right, if I got a B, she would sit down with me and say, "Here's here's what you missed, and I want to work on it with you and make sure. I remember sitting at the kitchen table crying over math because... <laughs> you know, because I wasn't getting something. Uh, but it but it was always made sure that we went back and that I truly learned it. Where when I went to college, you know, you get your grade, and then maybe and you you're might. moving on to the yeah. next thing. Exactly. Um, so that, that was sort of an odd thing for me going into the college environment.
1: And, and uh, you mentioned that you had, uh, what was the was it your entrance essay into your doctoral program or your college? You had an interesting essay experience?
0: Oh, just, brief- that, just that <laughs> I didn't know what to say. You and I were talking about that yeah, last yeah, week. Yeah. I, I really wanted to go into this audiology program and I, you know, I was worried that uh, I would come across as sort of not worthy in a way because I didn't have a science background. A lot of people who go into audiology have a background in speech and hearing sciences. Or, or maybe another, you know, scientific background.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Although I will say recently, I've been seeing more and more musicians getting into the field, which is pretty cool. But that when I cool. wrote my entrance essay, I essentially, you know, I said this in a nice way, but I essentially said, I, I don't know much about this field. I'm a musician. I really want to learn about this and sort of, you know, the concept of I promise to work hard <laughs> <laughs> and do my best uh, and, and do great things for the field. Uh, and they ended up taking me off of that, which That's awesome.
1: a two sentence. Was a wonderful thing for me. So let's, let's get into the, the, the field itself. Um, you mentioned it's, it's not just, you know, fitting hearing aids and things like that, um, but you work in the music industry. So how's that, how, how is that different from, or, or are most, are you in music industry specific or how did you decide you wanted to get into that? And I guess, how do you even, how do you even get into that? I, I would assume that a lot of audiologists want to work with musicians, or is that a, a, a false assumption?
0: No, I think that's an accurate assumption. Um, I, and I think it's for, for multiple reasons. Uh, but one, one thing is, it's, it's cool. You know, sure, it, to, sure. to be an audiologist who has a practice and you're working with patients, if a musician calls you, uh, whether it's to come out to the venue and work with them, maybe it's someone famous, or maybe it's a local musician who wants your services, uh, number one, it's cool, just because it is. I mean, we're musicians; we're cool people, right? I mean, you're a musician too. Everybody wants to work with us. No, I'm kidding. Um, but I, I think that's probably the main driver. Music, music audiology, stemmed from general hearing conservation. And hearing conservation, when we think of it, is things like you know OSHA, which is our regulating body in this country, and we think of factory workers and people who are exposed to sound and are regulated to wear earplugs. When those people are regulated to protect their hearing, it's it's not just them being handed a pair of earplugs. It's a full program that goes along with that, which includes hearing testing and some um, education on how to use the earplugs, how to care for themselves, um, causes of hearing loss, etc. cetera. And there are uh, something called administ- uh, engineering controls where they maybe look at the source of the sound and, they see if they can actually lessen that to a point where they maybe don't need to wear earplugs. So wow. there are many facets, and that's been going on for such a long time. And that was sort of the father of music audiology. And there are several people who started um, focusing on musicians decades ago. Uh, I'll just throw a few names out. Sure. Mead Killian is one. And Michael Santucci, he's, he was my mentor and still is. Um, Marshall Chasen is another and they were sort of um, the fathers of of what i'm doing now, and I have the pleasure of having those guys as my mentors it, it stemmed from people who started really caring about musicians, wanting to see good care there, and taking the model of hearing conservation um, from industry and applying it to to the music industry
1: so let 's talk about the music industry itself what what are the you mentioned that you you may uh they may request your services on on tour or in clinic. What are some of the things that you do with, with musicians?
0: Some of the things I do with musicians. um, Number one is get them to understand why they need to care about their hearing. Um, It's, it's, it's too often in my mind that I get a call from a musician who says, I can't tell pitches apart anymore. My ears are distorting. I have ringing in my ears and I need your help. And it's heartbreaking for me every time because I know that could have been avoided with proper care. And is that Um, too late at that
1: point, typically?
0: No, it's never too late. Um, There's certainly different therapies that can happen for those musicians. Um, You can kind of keep things stable. My goal in my practice, uh, it's wonderful to say, you know, save the ears, uh, (laughs) keep everyone healthy, blah, blah, blah. But in my mind, it's more keeping people working. And I think of my friends and family who are musicians, who have dedicated their whole life to learning an instrument and really specializing in it. And if they get to the point where they can't work, it's devastating for their life.
1: I've never Um, thought about that. Yeah. How the hearing would just destroy your career. mm -hmm.
0: That's totally right. And we, and we see in the news, um, famous musicians who cancel tours because their ears are ringing or maybe they have sensitivity to sound uh, and, and getting on stage is physically painful for them when they hear sound. Um, and so, you know, in my mind, it's how can we keep these people performing? How can we keep them as a working part of society in a way? Um, and, and keep them doing not only the livelihood that they need to survive, but also for many musicians, it is the love of their life. Um, and there's such a grief process that comes along with those disorders.
1: Um, when you're talking about that, my mind went to, I'm a huge Ryan Adams fan and, um, Mm -hmm. He, I don't know if you listen to any of his stuff, but he took a, a, a break for a while uh, touring. And I remember him um, s- uh, sending an email or, or something on, online where he suffers from, uh, is it Meniere's disease? Meniere's disease? Yep,
0: Meniere's disease. Yeah, he Meniere's... did a, a very interesting interview, I think on, I don't know if it was NPR or or maybe a podcast where he talked about his experiences with that.
1: And it was um, it, it's balance oriented and everything, right?
0: Mm-hmm. Yes, yes.
1: And so he, I mean, he must be working through it and he's obviously back out on the road, but that sounds like that could have been a a career ender uh, for someone like him.
0: Oh, definitely. Uh, of course, Meniere's disease, that's a huge area. And, and someone who's been diagnosed with Meniere's can have something, you know, more on the severe end or mild end, but um, it can be managed often in conjunction with an ear, nose and throat physician and an audiologist and, um but the attacks that you get with Meniere's disease can be very debilitating and very severe. And you often get, you know, uh, vertigo and mm-hmm. fluctuating hearing loss and loud ringing in your ears. And at that point, you're, I mean, you're not going to be able to get on stage or maybe travel um, with the, those kind of attacks going on.
1: Wow. I'm looking on your, your website and I see you've worked with everyone from or, or, um, you know, you got everyone from Blue Man Group to, you know, I see Ray Montaigne, Wilco, you know, Dawes. Mm -hmm. So what are, what are you doing for these folks? And and how do you get into the position where you're working with some of these, I mean, these are world-class acts.
0: Yeah. It depends. Uh, With, so I I try to be careful about what I say. Sure, Um, sure because you just named specific names and I never talk about it.
1: Yeah, I I guess. But I can tell you in general what
0: happens when I go see a musician.
1: Yeah, that's great. Um,
0: So for example, if if a tour is coming through town, coming through Cleveland, and they call me um, or email me and they say, you know, we want to have appointments done. What I do is I go on site. I have mobile testing equipment um, and I spend a good, you know, half hour or 40 minutes educating. Um, And I often say to the band and the crew, um, I have a real heart for crew, by the way. Mm -hmm. Um, I do see a lot of bands, but anytime I can get back line, like engineers, techs, um, lighting designers, I I really love working with them because they don't often get reached out to because they're not the face of of the tour kind of thing. So anytime I can get everyone to sit down (laughs) for a half hour, which is hard to do on a tour um, and educate, that's always the first step. So I go over causes of hearing loss. I go over music-induced hearing disorders. Um, I go over use of healthy use of in-ear monitors and how to choose an earplug. I mean, just any, any facet. I try to answer any question that they might have that comes up. I even talk about the benefits of, of earwax and how to clean mm-hmm. properly. I mean, every facet. So we all do that together. And then depending on the venue setup, um, usually I end up on the tour bus. Uh, and I'll see people one at a time for for hearing screenings on the back of the tour bus because that's usually the the most quiet area sure. that we can right. get in. Um, and then with each individual person, I'll talk about their needs and um, where they might be on stage if they're using in ears or earplugs, and I'll help them choose a device that I think will work best for them. Um, and the care doesn't stop there. I mean, for the for the day, it might stop there after I see everyone. But then I always do a lot of follow up with everybody. And so I will send out, you know, brochures on <laughs> all these disorders and how to prevent them. And I sort of reiterate what I say like three times sure, to everybody, sure. because we all know sitting down um, at a healthcare appointment, you're not going to hear everything. And even the stuff you do hear, you're not going to retain mm-hmm. very well. Um, so my main thing is the education. So I send up follow up emails um, when they get their, their devices, whether it's, earplugs are in-ears. Again, I send an email saying, here's how it should fit. Here's how I want you to use it. Check in with me. Um, And I do get a a lot of musicians following up with me and letting me know how they're using the devices, um, you know, how their ears are doing, scheduling a a yearly, you know, test with me in advance Mm -hmm. if they know their tour is coming back to town, um, et cetera. So that's kind of the whole package is looking at every facet. And again, the music industry gets so focused on the gear.
1: Why, why do, is this typically the first time they've met with an audiologist? Do they need to meet with them in every city or why Cleveland?
0: Uh, why Cleveland is t- because I'm here. Uh, sure, there sure. are very few audiologists in the country who are specialized. Okay. I, I mentioned Mike Santucci, who is my mentor. He, he owns Sensophonics, which is a manufacturer in Chicago. Mm-hmm. That makes earplugs and in your monitors. But next to the lab, they have a musician's hearing clinic that's been in business since 1985, I think. Most musicians I see have seen an audiologist at least once before. But of those musicians, maybe 5% have ever had a hearing evaluation or any education done. Wow. Usually, they go see an audiologist. They have an, a set of ear impressions taken. You know, They pay the fee and then they, they order whatever device they think they need um, from maybe what, an ad they saw online or something their, their friend told them to get, um, and that's the extent of care that they've received. So a lot of them are surprised when I come out and say, we're gonna sit down and talk, we're gonna look at your hearing, we're gonna you know, suss this all out and, and try to care for you and prolong your career. And they're often so um, responsive to that and grateful. And they ask me why? Why didn't? Why wasn't this done before? Um, and so it why wasn't? You know, that's sort yeah, of the,
1: that seems. It seems like that well, would be. Uh, you know, what what most uh, doctors would would be responsible for doing.
0: Yes, um, and I think that's going to change soon. I think we're going to see a change in the audiology industry. Um, and if you sit down with an audiologist and you say, "Okay, y- you saw this musician just for ear impressions." and didn't do anything else, and you ask them why, there might be 50 reasons. I mean, mm-hmm. one could be, oh, you know, the clinic I work at, we're not allowed to have more time for a musician. Maybe we're scheduled 10 minutes, you know, and so wow. it, one thing is, it could be out of their hands, um, but I think really the the driving factor is that audiologists are not educated on working with musicians. It is It is such a specialization, and it is so different in terms of the understanding and um, informational counseling that goes on with the musician that many audiologists just don't have those tools. Um, And so I think to to be fair, you know, I often want to say about the audiology industry that they, you know, aren't ethical with musicians and this and that, but it's actually, it truly comes down to lack of education and lack of understanding. It was easy for me to jump from just, you know, learning, for my audiology degree into the music industry because I have a background in it. Sure. And so it just made sense that I had all of this understanding, even with my own hearing and, you know, playing on stages that I I can relate to my patients.
1: At what point did you get to prioritize? Like I, you know, being an aunt is way more important than, you know, being, uh, working for T-Swift or something like that. Right. Like, right. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like you gave some um, of the, some of the stuff yeah. up to to uh, to go have this this balance, this you know a, a, a hobby farm and all that when you could be out in in the city.
0: Well, I think what's been interesting is that I haven't had to give anything up, um, hmm. and in my mind, it was that I had to be in Chicago in a in a big city in order to see uh, people and care for them. One thing for me is I've never been starstruck. Um, So to me, working for the world famous touring artists, uh, not that the appeal wasn't there, but it's not the reason I do what I do. Um, and so if I don't, if I don't see, you know, someone coming through, who's a billionaire singer, right. it's, it's right. not a big deal to me. Um, and because my heart has always been in the local working musicians, the union musicians, the crew, you know, production company, um, music industry personnel. And in terms of the work I'm doing now versus Chicago, I haven't, I haven't had to give anything up other than having a physical location. Mm-hmm. Um, and for me, I think this kind of also stems back to, you know, how I was raised in the community I grew up in is sort of having an even mindset about life and looking at priorities. And I'm not, I'm not that old. I'm going to be 30 here in a couple months. Oh my but, God,
1: you're young. I'm almost th- I just I, turned 37. You got, you're so much <laughs> younger and wiser than I am,
0: but I feel old, Ryan. I feel old. No, I'm just kidding. Um, I, I think, you know, the past few years, as I've seen myself becoming a, a grown-up, so to speak, becoming a grown woman, um, life changes. Sure. You know, and, and priorities do change. And I think, wow, I'm already potentially halfway through my life or maybe a third of the way through my life. And there's so, there's so much more I want to do yet. Um, and that was one of the things with starting my own practice. It has really allowed me to bloom in terms of my creativity, not that I couldn't at Sensophonics, I certainly could, but I was just kind of comfortable there, Um, and one thing that starting my own business allowed me to do was get way out of my comfort zone, and say, okay, now it's up to me to bring in my patients, and now it's up to me to, um, you know, I'm the face of my own business, it all comes back on me, and how am I going to be creative, and reach more people, Um, and so that." to me has been the most fun and and sort of worth it in starting my own business is saying okay i now have to get super creative and i have to kind of flex that muscle again um and not get comfortable comfortable in a business that's already being run
1: so how because do you do it that it really comes been, down to me now what's been working like what's been working and what hasn't been working is there anything that has surprised you as you've been kind of throwing things against the wall
0: what well, what surprised me the most <clears throat> is how much I relied on um, having a group of workers at a clinic and how much now, you know, with being on my own, there are certain things that I want to do where I get frustrated because maybe that's not a good skill of mine. Um, for ex- here's just an example is graphic design. Sure. I am not. I'm not a good, I'm not good with graphic design um, and also, you know, web design. I have a fantastic sister, my sister, Lisa, who I mentioned earlier, who has kind of become my, my right-hand man.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and she, she has such an eye. She, she's so visually um, creative that if I need something done and I'm frustrated with it, she does it, Ryan, in like two seconds. Um, I do all the care myself. I, you know, I run the business myself. But little things like that where she'll come in and design something for me that surprised me because I thought that I would be able to just kind of go out and handle everything myself. But I think that would be true of many business owners, you know, is, is realizing your own limitations um, and allowing other people to help you. That's well That's kind think of been hard for me but my realizing type.
1: What you're really good at, you know, should you just double down on the things you're good at and outsource everything else? I mean, that's, you know, it's time. It's everything right. now is a time versus money probably for you. You know, you could pay someone to do it Correct. or you can figure it out. And, um, I know I'm someone that is really stubborn and that I just want to figure it out. Um, when in actuality I should just, I should just pay somebody to do a lot of different things, but you know.
0: Right. I'm the same way. Um, so that's been kind of surprising. And the other thing is (laughs) this is going to sound super naive, man, running a business is a lot of work and, (laughs) um, a lot of, a lot of hours. Um, and there's just, it's just a 24 seven job. Um, and I think to myself, thank thank goodness I love this as much as I do, um, and love the field as much as I do, and take so much pride in what I do because I've been willing to put in very long days, um, and it's been paying off. But just the the amount of work that needs done is a little surprising.
1: Are, are there any, you know, habits or or rituals or anything that you you kind of do that that keep you grounded to to be able to. Um, Role with the with um with the chaos as as you put it. Is there something that you go to or turn to that you you know that might be useful to other folks as they're trying to navigate their own chaos?
0: Well, you know that's such an individual thing, and I and I don't know that I would have something that would work for everyone. Me personally, I'm a believer. Uh, I'm I'm a born again Christian, mm-hmm. and so you know for me it might be sitting in prayer. Um, or, you know, meditating on something and, and trying to think, you know, what would be the right way to handle, you know, a situation. Sure. And um, But that's obviously not going to apply to everybody. Um, another thing for me is, right now, as I'm in Ohio, and being back around my family, is really looking at them as a grounding source, and really having people I trust to to talk to and to bounce ideas off of. And That is almost as equally as important to me as the spirituality, is having a good group around you of people that you love and trust that you can say, hey, I had this idea for my business, you know me, you know my personality, (laughs) you know how I work, do you think this is feasible for me? And and that's almost a daily conversation um, with my sisters, with my parents, Um, and that has been such a huge help and such a grounding force. Is being able to talk things through, um, and if you're someone who's you know starting a business and you don't have a good group of friends or family around you, maybe see you know see if there's a therapist you can talk to <laughs> or like a good life advice. coach.
1: Yeah, no, good advice. Um,
0: it's just so helpful.
1: That's great. Um, for those of us that are musicians or, or those of us that are not musicians, what are you know? I, I spend a lot of my day with with headphones on, whether that's you know music or phone calls or things like that. What are some practical things that everyone should, are are there practical things that everybody should be doing in their day-to-day life that can help mitigate um, hearing loss?
0: Oh, definitely. Um, I mean, the obvious first step to help preventing, you know, hearing loss is is seeing an audiologist, I I believe, annually for a hearing test. Um, You know, you go to the dentist once a year, maybe twice a year. We know we're supposed to go get our eyes checked once a year. The same is true for your hearing. Um, We don't always think about it because we don't know what it's like to turn our ears off and be without them. Um, But I think that's the first step. Second step is if you're someone who's using headphones or earbuds every day, which many people are, I mean, you can walk around any city and see everybody has their earbuds in. There is a rule of thumb. There was a study done by um, Corey Portnuff, who I mentioned earlier, and and Brian Flyger. And they were looking at levels of personal music players, um, and and they came up with the 80 90 rule, and that is if you are listening for 90 minutes or more per day, keep it at less than 80 percent of the volume. So you know that's just for an easy rule of thumb. Now there are there are certain things that will make that easier. Um, so you know they they did this study, and I don't have the exact percentages right now because I don't have the study in front of me, but essentially they were finding that when someone is listening to a, a personal device, whether it's, you know, music or, or what have mm-hmm. you, um, in, a, in a quiet room, most will listen at a safe volume. It's somewhat rare that people would be listening, you know, just sitting in a quiet room. Um, typically they're out and about in, in their day or they have other ambient sound, background sound around them. Uh, and, and when they looked at it in the study in terms of that with ambient sound, the majority of people listened at unsafe volume. And yeah. And there is a reason for that. It's a a lot of the devices we put in our ears uh, in terms of earbuds and and some headphones, um, they're not isolating. Right. And so you're having to compete with all the sounds around you for volume. And so, you know, any chance you have to use something that's going to block you a little bit more from your environment, it will afford you the opportunity to reduce the volume. Um, And I say afford you the opportunity because it's not uh, nature, especially for musicians, to just decrease the volume because our brains work very differently um, and we have some pretty intense auditory memory. And so if we're used to listening at a certain volume and we've basically ear trained ourselves to listen there, you could put on the best isolating in your monitor or headphone or earphone in the world and you're going to listen at the same decibel uh, level. And so the the goal then is saying, okay, once you're isolated, once you've taken that step to having you know a better setup, then making a conscious effort to reduce the volume. That that's so that's the actual important step.
1: Very cool. Um, well, uh, this has been really interesting. A lot, you know, even from just the the, the practical sense of um, I'm trying to I'm looking at my uh, my iPhone right now and seeing what the volume is set at as I'm as I'm talking. <laughs> And, uh, you know, I think we're all super guilty of it, you know, um, but this is, this was really cool. You know, I, I appreciate you taking the time to, to, to talk about this a little bit. Cause I, you know, I didn't know as, as a, as a, I guess as a musician, I, you know, I didn't really know much about the audiology field. Uh, but also I love getting to talk to people that are doing something that's really unique and, and are finding success that, um, that aren't necessarily in New York or LA. I, you know, I think that there's, right. there's a misconception that, uh, you have to go to a, a mega city to, to be successful or do something unique. And, and so any chance I get, uh, to, to talk to someone who's doing it and, uh, uh, doing it while having a, a hobby farm, that's a, uh, that's a super exciting opportunity for me. So, um, where can people find you online? How do you, how, how should someone connect with you if they, if they wanted to, what's the best way to get hold of you?
0: Well, <clears throat> emailing me is a great option. Uh, the the practice I have is called sound check, one word, audiology. And so my website is soundcheckaudiology.com, but my email address is heather, my first name, at soundcheckaudiology.com. And I check my email constantly. Um, and And I'm <clears throat> pretty responsive. I'm always looking to educate people. I think you've probably gotten the impression now <laughs> from talking to me that I'm it's really big thing. on education. So, um, and so yes, anyone can feel free to email me any
1: questions. Awesome. awesome. Great. Well, thanks a lot for your time today. It's been great talking to you and, and I'm, I'm glad we got to kind of, kind of jam on this. So, you know, thanks for, thanks for the time and, uh, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll be in touch.
0: Thank you, Ryan. It's been a pleasure.
1: I want to thank Heather for her time and for for joining me on the Skype. Uh, learned a lot about a uh, lot about our ears, and uh, and and hope you guys did too. So, if you want to learn more about what she's up to, you can check out her website at soundcheckaudiology.com, and I hope to see you guys in a couple weeks on the next episode of Rust Belt Startup.